This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. If you were watching ABC on the 28th of September in 1997, you may have either felt your interest peaked or your stomach turn when you saw this preview for a brand new show. The generation that wouldn't grow up. I don't believe this. Just settled down. The premiere of 30-something, right after the season premiere of Moonlighting, tomorrow. When 30-something premiered the following night, it caused something of a sensation. Some loved it. The New York Times described it as as close to the level of an art form as weekly television gets. Others, on the other hand, were not fans, like Chicago Sun-Times writer Daniel Ruth. He wrote that 30-something expressed, quote, the heartbreak of rotten brie, the trauma of finding a babysitter, the embarrassment of breaking a shoelace on one's Reeboks, and the special anguish of having one's infant crying in a restaurant. But love or hate 30-something, it is surprising how many of us still remember the show today. The show is not available on DVD, but it has been the subject of several academic books and articles. And the term 30-something, which did not exist as a single word prior to the show, has become a pretty familiar part of our language. I was a teenager when the show first came out, and although I am now 30-something, I have to say that I still can't exactly relate to Hope, Michael, Elliot, Gary, and Melissa's problems. So why all the fuss over a bunch of Philadelphia baby boomers? What's so great about 30-something anyway? Here to discuss, and maybe defend, the program is Al Oster. Oster's an associate professor of communication and media studies at Fordham. And with Leonard Court, he is the author of 30-something, Television, Women, Men, and Work. That book's due out in December from Roman and Littlefield Publishers. I spoke to Oster earlier this week in our studios. Al Oster, welcome. Thank you, Nora. Now, tell me about 30-something. 30-something was a TV show that aired from around 1988 to 1991. And it was a show that dealt with uh, the quotidian, the everyday life of characters rather than car chases and melodrama. It dealt with things like um, divorce, you know, work. Um, Two of the leading characters had a small ad agency in Philadelphia and then went on to work for a larger ad agency. It dealt with things like um, one of the lead characters was an academic and his trying to get tenure and his failure to get tenure and what he did after he didn't get tenure. Another character was a uh, woman who worked for the city of Philadelphia as a sort of major bureaucrat in City Hall. So it was about everyday things. It was about things that normally did not get portrayed on television. And these were not lawyers or doctors, so they were not in crisis situations all the time, although it dealt with the crisis of everyday life. You know, how do you deal with a child who's in uh, the throes of an illness? What happens when you have a couple that's an um, interdenominational arrangement, one, one being Christian, one being Jewish? You know, how that works out and plays out. So it, was, it dealt with everyday things, and as a famous Russian by the name of Nadja Mendelstan once said, everyday heartbreaks. So what did people say about the show when it was on, and how do they remember it now? There was a famous quote from the New York Times that said that the show was the closest to art that TV has ever really come. And it won uh, a number of Emmys. The second year it was on the air, it won an Emmy for Best Drama. It won a number of Emmys as uh, for its actresses. It won a number of Peabody's 
Uh, it won a number of other awards uh, that I can't think of right now, but it was highly regarded. Uh, it never did, however, have the kind of audience that um, hit TV shows like The Cosby Show or other shows have had. But it did have a very loyal, very, very devoted, and very, very articulate fan base. And the fan base was sort of in the upper echelons of uh, society. You know, they were more upper middle class. Now, a lot of people hated the show. I mean, it was one of those kind of shows that either people loved, I being one of them, or absolutely hated to the point of uh, excreation. You know, they just thought it was execrable. They thought it was about yuppies whining and complaining and, you know, not really being serious, et cetera, et cetera. So it had a very divided kind of audience reaction to it. But the critical reaction was generally very, very good. Plus, it inspired a whole series of other shows, which I don't think were as good, but couldn't have, let's say, gone on the air without its things like Beverly Hills 90210, which is about a group of friends, which is what 30-something was about. Seinfeld, which is about a group of friends, friends, etc. Was this, in your view, the first show that was sort of about the just everyday life, people sitting around and talking and stuff? Yeah, basically. I mean, most shows before that, as I said, had been, you know, lawyer shows or doctor shows or cop shows. You do have that kind of a show, let us say, in daytime, although it's filled with re- uh, melodrama and sentimentality, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But this was, yeah, this was the first show that really dealt with everyday life, nothing very, very sentimental, nothing very, very melodramatic, although a number of tragic things do happen during the course of the show. Now, you obviously really like this show a lot, and that's interesting to me because I've never actually heard anybody defending 30-something. I remember when it was on when I was, like, a young teenager— um, my mother just thought it was the most vile thing that had ever been on television, and she would basically make the argument that, that you just made, um, that it was uh, basically yuppies whining about, about their everyday lives. Tell me, to counteract my mother's views, what do you love so much about 30-something? Well, first of all, I like the characters. I mean, the characters are very deep. They're complicated. One could not generally from prior shows always understand what their reactions to things would be. The relationships were complicated. There were uh, a couple, uh, Nancy and, uh, oh, God, I can't remember his name right now. That's that Elliot? Elliot, exactly, who went from uh, deep-seated estrangement to ultimately a very, very complicated and very, very complex and tight relationship in the course of this show. There was Hope and and Michael, who were the cornerstone of the show, who went from being the cornerstone to a gradual, although not to the level of divorce or or separation, but somewhat of alienation from one another, not really understanding one another. There was Melissa, who was Michael's cousin, who was seen as kind of a dishrag kind of woman, uh, very vulnerable, very, very needy. Yeah, they also need somebody around who's not in touch with her feelings, which I know is what Hope thinks about me. Ah. What? If you were any more in touch with your feelings, Melissa, you'd be molesting me. 
who in the course of the show developed in someone who was very, very competent in what she did. She was a photographer, very skilled one, and professionally advanced in her career during the course of the show. So the characters were very complicated and very, very complex and uh, deep characters. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking on the show today about the TV show 30-something. My guest is Al Oster. Oster's an associate professor of communication and media studies at Fordham. And with Leonard Court, he is the author of 30-something, Television, Women, Men, and Work. That book's due out late this year from Roman and Littlefield. I mentioned earlier on that 30-something is not just a subject for TV fans. It's been the topic of a fair amount of academic writing as well. I asked Oster why the show is such a text for academics. Well, for one thing, it was one of its kind and, and, and has not really been repeated. It was unique in, in, as I said, in its dealing with the ordinary heartbreaks, the quotidian of everyday life. But in a sense, it was one of the first shows that left the usual Hollywood, I'm sorry, the usual TV aesthetic approach to drama. For instance, it used flashbacks, it used fantasy, it used different kinds of settings that illuminated the characters, that you know gave you greater insight into them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it used a lot of film techniques. So it was very unique in that regard, that it, it broke away from the standard television aesthetic. Then, of course, as I said, the characters who are very, very interesting. I haven't, what I haven't mentioned is some of the subsidiary characters who came in in the course, uh, you know, who began to play prominent roles outside of the original seven main characters. For instance, there was the head of the aid agency that Michael and Elliot go to work with, and he was um, a sort of a Faustian character, David, played by David Clennon, um, Miles, and... Um, the kind of uh, compromises that had to be made and, and uh, the moral issues that were raised in the advertising segments and episodes of the series. There was another a character, a woman character, who marries, um, or first they live together, have a child, and then get married, Gary, who uh, is the academic who loses his academic position. And she's ver- a very independent feminist um, who gets involved with Gary, who initially is shown as a kind of a womanizer, a Peter Pan, a man who can't make commitments, but ultimately does to her. It's the only way. Repeat after me. I swear by the full moon. I swear by the full moon. No more picking up girls in hardware stores. No more picking up girls in hardware stores. No matter how good their bodies are. (laughs) That's a tough one. But okay. No matter how good their bodies are. She retains a lot of sharp edges. She's not your sweet, gentle, kind woman. He, she's a woman filled with ambiguity and, again, ambiguity about their relationship and an ambiguity about having a child and, and, and whatever. Very unusual for 1980s, 19, early 1990s uh, American television to deal with that kind of relationship. Unusual today, even, I would think. Exactly, exactly. Plus the fact that I want to mention one thing, and I said 
there's tragedy in the, in the show. And as I said, it, it's ordinary heartbreaks. Nancy develops ovarian cancer. It tightens her relationship with Elliot, but brings her to face-to-faith with life-and-death issues. And in the course of the series, Gary, who I just mentioned, dies. And w- w- the effect of that on this group, which has been very, very tight-knit and, and very, very close and what effect the death of someone who you've been so close to has on on you is explored. One of the things that's interesting about the show, and you mentioned this um, in the form of the boss character, Miles, is it's very much sort of of its time. It's very much like a Reagan-era show that is about a bunch of, you know, younger baby boomers who are very materially well-off. Tell me about why that makes the show more interesting. For one thing, you have the ambitions of the characters. I mean, Michael is a super responsible person. And he he and Elliot get this job as a, you know, copywriting team for the agency headed by Miles. And they have to deal with the kinds of issues that would not, as you said, not be dealt with by contemporary television. For instance, one of the most famous episodes is an episode called Last Stop at Willoughby. And in this episode, Michael, who has risen to the top of the agency, he's practically running it because Miles is distancing himself from the day-to-day running of the agency. And it's during the first Gulf War. They're doing a series of commercials for a, a beer company. I forget exactly what it was. And they have an actor who is in the uh, commercial. And what happens is that He's depicted on the news protesting against the war. And the head of the beer company comes to the Miles and says, I don't want this guy in my commercial. You know, I I have all these people who work for me, a lot of them who have sons over there in Desert Storm, and I don't want this guy working. Cancel all the commercials, get rid of him, fire him. And Michael makes the argument that the guy is merely expressing free speech. You know, he's doing what every American is entitled to. He said, I don't care. I don't want him in the show. There's a long conversation about that. And then Michael just absolutely, on top of this, there's other frustrations and death that he's gone through. he's He's really just falling apart. But he just cannot deal with the fact that he is being used in this, what he feels is kind of immoral way. And he confronts Miles, he confronts the owner of the beer company. Obviously, they say, no, we're paying the bills. You're going to have to do what we want to do. And obviously, Michael has to make the decision. Is he going to fall in line, fall in step, make the compromises, or is he going to protest in some kind of way? Which he does. That's, That's somewhat unique, that he would. But he does, and he resigns. And there's a wonderful long speech that you would never hear in contemporary television or any kind of television where Miles talks about what advertising is. And he says to him, our job is to soothe, our job is to make everybody feel that they're part of something, that we're going to take care of their anxieties, we're going to take care of their ambiguities, et cetera, et cetera. And if you, how come you don't know this, Michael? This is so revealing about what 
advertising does, what, it, what's, what its real underlying assumptions are, not just to sell people things, which obviously is part of the equation, but to do something more, to say something more about our society, to make you feel part of it in terms of the stuff you consume. That kind of stuff would never be in American television now. I don't know why. Uh, it just doesn't happen anymore. It's your art center. It's too condescending. Condescending. Right. It's, 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 it's our art center. Too general. General, general. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Guy in a hard hat. Yeah? He's smiling. Right. He's proud. Right. Yo, it's my art center. Yo, it's my art center? We do six different bus bench ads, okay? Six different normal, non-artsy type people all saying it's their art center. Then we do one big TV spot where they're all fighting over it, and, and then five people are killed, and the winner comes out like all bloody with their arm hanging off, and they hand them the D. One of the things that you talk about is one of the big critiques of the show being that it was really a vehicle of encouraging a consumerist kind of lifestyle, like a very specific yuppie kind of, I guess what I would call today kind of a pottery barn kind of existence. Right. Um, Stickly Audi. <laughs> Stickly Audi? <laughs> yeah, that furniture company. A lot of the stuff that appears in Hope and Michael's house comes from Stickley Audi. So was that episode of the show specifically designed to address that critique, or is it just a coincidence? I have colleagues who would probably say yes. I think it's secondary. I think, yeah, they they wanted to give a sense of verisimilitude as far as what the lifestyle of these people was like. And so, yeah, so they had stickly Audi furniture and, and various other kind of consumer products that were very, very popular in the 80s and 90s. But that was, as I said, to give it a sense of reality, time and place, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it was the core of the show. I think the core of the show was the relationships and the issues of, as I, we point out in our book, my, I haven't mentioned him. I've written this book with a colleague, Professor Leonard Quart. The issues that it raises about contemporary feminism, men's reactions and, and dealing with contemporary feminism, and the issue of work, which is central to the series. You don't have many series that deal with that anymore. Now, you mentioned the, uh, the feminist aspects of the show. You talk a lot about the gender critiques of the show. Let me ask you about the feminist critique. What was it, and why do you say that it's not, it's not correct? People felt, um, a lot of critics felt, uh, that the women were uh, stereotypes, that uh, Hope, for instance, the wife of Michael, was too good to be true. I mean, she could throw a party with one hand and raise her two kids with the other without seeming to break a sweat and also be uh, a great lover and uh, a great wife and uh, didn't seem to be real. The thing that I thought was interesting about what you talked about with Hope was that she has this sort of career that she can say she has a career where she's, is she a writer? Is that she's it? a writer and a researcher, yeah. Yeah. So she has this career, but it doesn't require her to not actually be in the home being a housewife. So she's sort of the best of both worlds. Well, she tries it. She tries to have the best of both worlds. And at one point in the, one of the episodes, she gets a job doing research and finds it's very, very difficult, you know, doing the work, raising a child, being a wife, dealing with a home, et cetera, et cetera, and she can't cope with it. And she goes back to being basically a wife and mother. But all throughout the show, and this is where we differed from the feminist critique, 
they saw that as the, as the backbone of hope. But hope essentially was always trying in her own way, incrementally, not in one great leap, to create a, a new role for herself, somehow to do the balance of wife, mother, and also have some sort of career of her own. It's only at the actually in the very last episode of the show that she finally breaks away. I mean, it doesn't end her relationship with Michael, but it changes it. So what what we found in, in contrast to the feminists who did criticize the show, and there were quite a few of them, that as in most good series television, the characters change and grow. And if you base your analysis of the characters on maybe one season or two seasons of the show, you really don't get the full context. That, that hope within the context of the show was really trying to grapple with issues that most women, I feel, probably grapple with and trying to come to her own solution. The interesting part of it is that a lot of the key writers of the show were women, and they wrote the episodes dealing with, uh, for instance, many of the women characters and showed them in dealing with relationships, dealing with work, dealing with their husbands, dealing with their kids. I think that's one of the failures of the feminist critique is that while they looked at maybe the first or second season, I don't think they saw every show. And I don't think they saw the progression in characters like Hope, like uh, Nancy, like Ellen, and uh, the various other characters in the show. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This morning at 7.30 on WFUV, it's Cityscape. On this week's show, a conversation with the Brooklyn author Gabriel Cohen about his novel Boombox. That's Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30. We've been talking today on Fordham Conversations with Al Oster. Oster's an associate professor of communication and media studies at Fordham, and he is the co-author of the upcoming book 30-something, Television, Men, Women, and Work. That'll be out from Roman and Littlefield Publishers this winter. Let's hear the rest of that conversation. Now, a lot of people would agree with you that this was a great show, but it was also called one of the most manipulative and annoying shows of the 80s. Why Why did some people love this show so much, and why did others hate it so much? Well, I can only speak for myself. I mean, I, I loved it, and as I, I explained why. I loved the characters. I loved the complexity of them. I loved the situations they were in. I think the people who disliked the show didn't like the fact that Hope wasn't a full-blown feminist, okay? Didn't like the fact that Nancy just was wavering between independence and, and dependence on on Elliot. Didn't like the fact that the men were constantly talking about themselves. You know, this is unusual for men to talk about themselves and talk about themselves in a fairly uh, conscious way. To understand, you know, talk about their feelings. That was a little difficult and and unusual for television, uh, for men to uh, deal with their internal issues in in that kind of overt way. I screwed it up on purpose. I didn't trust myself to love you. I mean, when you get right down to it, maybe I can't do it. Maybe I'm not capable of it. Maybe I just don't deserve it. People found that bothersome. 
I mean, the way some people dislike psychobabble, and there was some psychobabble in the show. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that every episode was uh, perfect and wonderful, et cetera, et cetera. In any series where you have to do uh, twenty episodes a year, there's going to be some dross. But for the most part, I felt that they dealt with the characters who might be a little, you know, more facile than we are, might be able to drop a funny line quicker than we can, or Bon Mo or Pon or whatever. There was a kind of realism there. Why people disliked it, I think it's hard to gra- see people grappling with the same kind of problems you might be grappling with. And, and maybe dealing with them perhaps more successfully or unsuccessfully, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, People come to television to escape, to be entertained. They don't come, by and large, to see their problems that they are facing in their own lives confronting them. It's not what people come to television for. It's interesting that you say that these are problems that that people themselves have, because I'm sure that that was true for some viewers. But one of the big criticisms of the show is that these are people who are extremely well off, even if they are portrayed as being middle class, they are obviously somewhat wealthy, and who have really beautiful stuff and who seem, at least to some viewers, to be basically, uh, you know, yuppies who are always creating crises for themselves. And that was one of the big criticisms of that. Yeah, but, you know, people who are wealthy have problems. I mean, my favorite poem when I was uh, growing up and, and in high school was Richard Corey. You remember that poem? I mean, we, you know, he has the man who has everything, goes home one night and shoots himself. Existential problems are existential, and everybody has them. And whether you have a million dollars or one dollar, you know, you're still going to go through crises. Now, granted, obviously, people with money have a you know greater leeway and, and greater parameters to deal with those problems. But if you think, for instance, about some of the great American literature, think of Gatsby for instance. These are people, he's a person with everything. I mean, a huge house, throws parties, et cetera, et cetera. He wants one thing, Daisy, can't find, get her, okay? Um, if you think of the novels of John O'Hara, if you think of um, John Cheever, all these people are upper middle class, yet they have great, great many problems and, and existential crises. Existential crises and, and the ordinary heartbreaks of life are not solely confined to the poor and so, yeah, they were yuppies, but just they're just the latest manifestation of the American middle class. And these are people that William Deans Howells wrote about. These are people that some of the great American literature, as I've said, it was written about. So I, I find that that uh, criticism doesn't wash, really. You talk a lot about masculinity on 30-something. What do you say about that? Here's the issue, I think, and, and it's a kind of an interesting one. Um, and as a man, obviously, I'm talking from a very particular and subjective point of view. Feminists, to a large degree, have a very, very strong point of view and issues that they're dealing with. There's no denying that. But not very much has been written about men, like myself, trying to deal with women who are feminist, okay? I think women have feminist models. You know, you have Gloria Steinem, you have Betty Friedan, you have Simone de Beauvoir, if you want to go back further in, the, in you know, feminist history. I mean, who am I 
models. And I'm not Sartre, so I can't, I can't deal with women in the same way that he dealt with Beauvoir. But how do I cope with um, women who want to continue their careers and, and maybe delay childbearing or, or have children and continue with their careers, um, want to share domestic issues and domestic chores, et cetera, et cetera? As, as one of the producers of the show said, it's really one of the neglected and perhaps one of the salient issues of a modern era, era how men deal with women who are feminist. Would you describe 30-something as being in any way uh, subversive, and why or why not? Yes. Um, I, I think we mentioned the Last Stop at Willoughby episode, but there are others which are... A subversive in terms of uh, dealing with the whole nature of advertising, consumerism. Well, one thing they didn't, they never really dealt with, and I'm sorry that they didn't, was race, which is a really important one. But they never really dealt with that. And um, it's curious that they never did because the show took place in Philadelphia, which is, it's kind of odd. But it did deal with subversive in the sense that it took everyday issues and I keep on returning to that, and pointing out that these are the things of real drama in people's lives. These are the things that people really relate to. Well, Al Astor, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Nora. That was Al Oster. He's an associate professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University. His book is co-authored with Leonard Court, and it's called 30-something, Television, Women, Men, and Work. The book's due out this December from Roman and Littlefield Publishers. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you missed part of the show, or if you'd like to hear it again, there are a couple ways to go. It's available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. If you have something to say about 30-something, or something else, you can email us. Our address is Conversations at wfuv.org, and we would love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.